Deuteronomy chapter 5. Here, the nation of Israel can see the promised land. They're on the eastern side of the Jordan River looking across Jericho. The city itself may actually be in their view at this point. They can definitely see the promised land looking across the Jordan. And now Moses is giving the nation of Israel this recounting of the law because there's a younger generation that has known the law and been taught the law, but they weren't present when the nation as a whole received the law. So now, as they're about to cross over, Moses is giving them the first-hand account of all the history, the reception of the law, and the details of the law. He's going to say, again, two things, statutes and judgments. So as we read through this section, which contains a recounting of the Ten Commandments, you need to keep in mind the statute, in this case we would say, would be the Ten Commandments. The judgments are then the things that you would carry out as a punishment, given uh, that those might, you know, those laws might be broken or would be broken. So you have statutes and judgments that Moses is talking about here. More about statutes uh, than than it is judgments. So Deuteronomy chapter five, verse one. Moses called all Israel and said to them, "Hear, O Israel." the statutes and judgments which I speak in your hearing today, that you may learn them and be careful to observe them. Not just in the learning, not just in the hearing, not just in the knowing, it's in the observing. They, they have to follow these directions. We have so many statements in the scripture about being hearers and doers of the word, not merely just hearers. There's a great detriment in only being a hearer. You're going to have that struggle in your life, and you're going to meet people uh, that are in Christianity that have that mentality of, you know, just knowing is all that's required, and that's not the truth at all. We are required to live by the things that we learn. Verse 2, the Lord our God made covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, those who are here today, all of us who are alive. Biggest reason that he's making that statement, because the covenant was given to the fathers. The biggest reason he's making the statement was, that their fathers didn't get to see these things fulfilled. They, they don't get to enter the land. So, so they simply received these statements, which, which are more expansive than just these Ten Commandments in chapter 5, the promise of the land and all that they should do and conduct themselves in the land. The fathers have all passed away without entering into those promises. So here it's going to have in a special uh, you know, fulfillment as they cross over into the land. The covenant was made today, all of them that are alive. The Lord talked with you face to face on the mountain from the midst of the fire. In case you're confused about that, right, there's 
a small group here that was under the age of 20 years old, children and those that the Lord did not hold accountable, who have now grown up to be adults, who were part of that generation, and he's generically speaking to them as an entire nation. The Lord spoke to the nation about these things, and there were those who were young, who are now elders within the community, who were present when these things took place. I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire, did not go up, the mountain, he said, and then, the, you know, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So the standing between was out of fear. And the, the people of the nation of Israel saw the mountain on fire, the smoke rising from the mountain, heard the thundering of God's voice, could even audibly hear God speaking through all of that calamity and noise and they were filled with terror and said to Moses we don't want to communicate with God anymore you go speak to God and whatever it is he relays to you you come back and tell us and we'll be faithful to obey uh, nothing could be farther from the truth uh, they did not obey the Lord they didn't follow those things and very often now, this is exactly how human beings react. They sit sometimes even in a church service like this, and the Word of God reaches straight through all of the callousness and sinfulness of our hearts and our behavior and touches us in a way that shakes us to the core. And we're left thinking, I'm scared out of my mind about how direct this is. Uh, uh, Oliver and I and um, Steve and who else was with us? You know, Evan. We're talking about um, recently uh, when we first start, came to the Lord and we first started attending church. Uh, you know, uh, it, it was it was as though our pastor uh, like had bugged our house. You know, you know, it, it was. Uh, I'll never. Forget, you know, what what I had done was uh, I, I became convinced that my wife was talking to my pastor's wife. And then my pastor was like preaching directly at me, you know, during the church service. Just it was so detailed. It was so. And, uh, you know, as much as they told me, no, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, if you feel convicted, you really just need to. You know, listen to what the Lord is saying to you. The thing that convinced me that it was the Holy Spirit was, you know, arriving at church. And I've had, you know, one of those, I, I know you just can't ever imagine this happening, but one of those arguments with my wife in the car on the way to church. And now the pastor is quoting me from the pulpit. <laughs> things I said in the car. And the realization that you know there's no way that that that's any human form of communication and we all we're laughing as we describe these things but here's something i want to caution you against right uh, new testament jesus is casting out demons and there comes the religious delegation from jerusalem and they're basically coming so that they can publicly renounce jesus ministry 
Uh, the ministry has grown in popularity, and people are asking them, do we follow the teachings of Jesus, or do we reject the teachings of Jesus? So they send a group out to simply arrive and act like they're listening to what he has to say, and then say, nope, this is of the devil. And they arrive, and Jesus is casting out demons. And it's really hard to say that is an evil thing, but they do anyway, right? They say, yeah, 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 he ca I'm paraphrasing, it doesn't actually, but he says, yeah, yeah, right, fine, he's casting out demons. But he does that by the power of the devil himself, okay? Jesus then makes a statement that's critical to what I'm saying. He says to them, every other sin can be forgiven. You can blaspheme the Son of Man. You can say all kinds of evil things. But blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. How does that interlock? Jesus is performing the supernatural work of the Lord in casting out demons. And they attribute it to something evil. And they say that it's of the devil. If you come into a church service and the pastor is saying something that strikes right to your heart, but you say to yourself, well, my spouse spoke to him and he's really just being manipulative. If that's the work of the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart and you're attributing it to the wickedness of man, the manipulation of a human being, you're at least flirting with blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Because if the Holy Spirit is the one that's speaking to you, and you're saying that's the wickedness of a human being, you might want to check your heart. It's a very serious thing that we flippantly come across here. They can't speak to God. You go talk to God, Moses, and bring us back whatever it is he has to say, and then we'll be obedient. And that's why I make a big deal of this, because they don't obey. Here's the point. You can go directly into the presence of the Lord. You don't need me to spoon feed you every message you're going to receive from God. You can open the book up yourself. You can pray and say, speak to me, Lord, and he will speak to you. You need to also follow that up with obedience. Because whether you're hearing directly from him yourself or you're hearing it from one of his ministers, the key point is the obedience, following what was said. So I'll read six again. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, a symbol of sin that they were delivered from and the bondage that sin brings us into. Verse 7 you shall have no other gods before me. Now, this idea of before me, uh, we talked last week about how artwork is not a problem. You know, if you've got a picture of an angel in your house that somebody drew, the Lord's okay with that. Uh, you know, you get a picture of Jesus, uh, you know, that somebody drew, the Lord's okay with that. Uh, it's impossible, right, to say that that's what Jesus looks like. It isn't some kind of prohibition on art. Uh, inside the tabernacle, they were to weave inside the tapestry images of the cherubim and the seraphim, the angels that stood before the God. On top of 
the Ark of the Covenant, they were supposed to have these molded images of angels there. Wonderful, beautiful representations of heaven and God and all of these things. Uh, the idea is worshiping them. And this is what the Lord means of before him. The idea that you would fall down, you would worship, you would seek that thing to replace God in his presence is the thing that's being said. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them to serve them. That's the point. Having the artwork is not what the Lord is forbidding. It's the worshiping of the artworks, the bowing down before them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. We'll get to that in just a moment. But showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. The answer is right within the passage, right? Well, what is this generational cursing thing that is here? I've been in churches where they talk about generational curses, okay? Say, so, oh, my you know, father was a drunkard, and therefore I'm going to be a drunkard, and my children will be a drunkard. Well, you know, up to the third and fourth generation, if that's what you're implying, then that never ends. Okay, if that's going to be the spiritual formula that you use, then once you've started the cycle, it never ends. If the great-great-grandfather was a horse thief, then you're saying then the great-grandfather is going to be a horse thief. And then the grandfather and then the father, third and fourth now generation. Well, but wait a minute. If the grandfather down through successively is a horse thief, then his third or fourth generation, right? It never ends. It, it, the iniquity will be visited, meaning there's going to be repercussions, right? How many of us in this room have seen in the lives of our children the effects of our sin? Heartbreaking, isn't it? To wish... To wish you can just even the way they talk and it sounds just like you and you're thinking, Lord, deliver them from me. Ch change their heart. Do something. The effects of ours. That's what the Lord is saying is we 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 put a fingerprint upon the children. They they have to bear the pain of our failures. They have to bear the pain of our sin. Uh, there's something very particular that you need to examine in all of this. I would ask you to turn with me to Ezekiel. The Lord very directly addresses this issue. And I'm going to take a little chunk here in sharing this this morning. Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 1 through 32. Now, I'm not going to read or expound on every one of these verses. I just want to make the very strong point. Our culture has completely adopted this mentality that because my father sinned, I sin. You know, this is a generational thing. You know, my relatives were drunkards, therefore I'm a drunkard. 
you know, it's handed down. Sometimes it skips a generation. You're going to hear all kinds of weird stuff regarding this. It's completely false. AA, NA, self-help groups have promoted this wildly. Christianity has grabbed a hold of it and promoted it wildly. It's not what the scripture teaches at all. It's actually a very old, ancient thing here that the prophet Ezekiel addresses. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, What do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, and here's the, the proverb, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. So, Set on edge is gritted together, sucking in the air. That's literally how it's described. So, you, you know, just like you would do. You eat something very sour and you go, <laughs> it's, it's has, uh, it invokes a physical reaction. And what the proverb was is that the fathers have eaten the sour grapes, but the children are having the physiological reaction. Okay. It's the generational curses. And so so it would look like this. Uh, the father's a fighter, right? Goes around punching people all the time. And known as, oh, you want to be careful of that guy. He's got a real temper and he might even start swinging. And then the little boy, you know, gets in a fight at school. He's sent home and the parents got to deal with the discipline. And they would then say, the father has eaten sour grapes and look. The children's teeth are set on edge. Meaning, you know, what do we say? The apple hasn't fallen far from the tree. We've got all kinds of things that we associate with this. Okay? Listen to what the Lord has to say right here in this setting. As I live, verse 3, says the Lord, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Right? Definitive command. You are no longer going to say this amongst believers, whether this be Israel or it be the church today. The Lord is saying, I do not want this said by you anymore. I want this statement to stop amongst you. Listen, that means you and I are going to have to hold one another accountable to that statement. Right? My mother always acted this way, therefore I act. So my father always acted this way, therefore I act this way. Not true. The Lord is here saying that is not true, and you will not say that anymore. I do not want believers saying that anymore. It doesn't matter how much the world, it doesn't matter how much psychologists, it doesn't matter how much it's entered into the pulpits of the world. The Lord is saying, I do not want this said by believers anymore. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son are, is mine. The soul who sins shall die. But if a man is just and does what is lawful and right, verse 9, and if he walks in my statutes, and keeps my judgments, see, that's where we're studying in Deuteronomy, right? Faithfully, he is just. He shall surely live. 
says the Lord. Yet you say, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? Because the son has done what is lawful and right and has set all my statutes and observed them. He shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of <coughs> the righteous shall be upon himself. The wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. And if a wicked man turns from all his sin, which he has committed, keeps all my statutes and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him because of the righteousness which he has done. He shall live. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? And when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, so now the opposite direction, if you were righteous and you become sinful and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed. Because of them he shall die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not fair. Hear now, O house of Israel, is it not my way which is fair and your way which are not fair? When a righteous man turns away from righteousness, commits iniquity, and dies in it, it is because of the iniquity which he has done that he dies. And this dying and this living that he's talking about is eternal, right? Because everybody dies. You know, you, you don't die directly as a punishment for your sin. It's the idea of when you die, you're sent into eternal death. Or when you die, you're sent into eternal death life again a wicked man turns away from the wickedness which he committed and does what is lawful and right he preserves himself alive because he considers and turns away from all the transgressions which he committed he shall surely live he shall not die yet the house of israel says the way of the lord is not fair O house of israel is it not your ways which are fair and in your ways which are not Fair, or my ways which are fair and your ways which are not fair. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord. God, repent and turn from all your transgressions so that the iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourself a new heart and a new spirit, for why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, says the Lord. Therefore, turn and live. Our society it does this all the time. <clears throat> I, I, I sin, I can't help it. Uh, my fathers sinned and they taught me to sin. And therefore, my sin is their fault. This is just the way I was raised. This is how I was molded. This is how I was shaped. Okay, well, here's the deal. I can't really deny that, right? That's how you were raised. That's what you learned. That's what you absorbed. Fine. Genetically, that's how you were born. That's what you were predetermined to be towards. 
But in the end, it comes down to your behavior is the thing that condemns you or, right, delivers you. Each one of us is accountable for that. So if you go back to what's being said in Deuteronomy chapter 5, the Lord is saying the condemnation comes upon each person according to their sin, but the effects will affect up to three or four generations after you. What we do has a very profound effect on the generations that follow. Consider, right, this nation and the way that it has deteriorated, the way that it has forsaken God. Um, one year's time, one year's time, violent crime in America has increased 800%. From, from, from 2019 to the, the end of 2019 to the completion of 2020, one full year, 800% increase in America in violent crimes. You'll never believe what they're contributing it to. Yes. Yep. COVID-19. Every other nation in the world has experienced the same rate of COVID-19 and almost all other nations, violent crimes have diminished by large percentages. 15, 20, 25%, 68%. Why? Because the government and the police forces have exerted greater controls over their citizenry. America has lifted its hands and let greater and greater violence occur everywhere, right? Defund the police. 800% increase on average in violent crimes in America. Where did that begin? Some of you were present in the public school system in 1963 when they made the decision to remove prayer from the public school. Take God out of the, the public schools from 1963 to 1973, there was a 500% increase in violent crimes in America. And everybody stands around scratching their head saying, how did that happen? You threw off all of the restraints. And that is the result, Right. The sins of the fathers tell me they haven't visited to the third and the fourth generation. Here we are today, still reaping the whirlwind and everything that comes from it. Verse 11. We've got a few more minutes. You shall not take the Lord your God's, uh, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. We've talked about this several times. Taking his name in vain certainly is the idea of using God's name as a curse word to cuss and swear and use God's name in a derogatory way. But it also, in equal portion, has the idea of assigning God's name in an empty way. Vain, empty, useless. You assign to yourself God's name, right? The nation of Israel, you know, they saying we are governed by God. And yet they were worshiping idols and living in sin and murdering their neighbors and stealing. You've assigned God's name to yourself in an empty way. Christianity 
right? Originally, Christianity was known as the way. Not to be confused with the cult uh, formed by Victor Paul Weirwald in the 70s and all of that weirdness that followed. But in the first 100 years, they would talk about how they were following the way of Jesus Christ and the things that he taught. So Christianity became known as the way. It was in Antioch where the unbelievers first began to refer to Christians, believers, as Christians. And that term was a mockery. It means little Christ. And they were mocking the people who were believers who lived according to the way, right? Maybe cursing and swearing and carrying on and doing all kinds of evil things. And their co-worker was a Christian who would rebuke them and correct them and try to teach them the word of God. And they'd be like, oh, well, here comes the little Christ. Now we got to listen to this. The Christian, the small representation of Jesus in the world. Now today, people assign that to themselves and then don't live according to it. They have the very title of our Savior, right? The Anointed One, the Christ, placed upon themselves, and then they don't live according to it. You may never use Jesus' name as a curse word. I also hope that you never assign to yourself the title of Christian in an empty way, that you're living according to being Christ-like and representing him where you go so that it's not an empty and a vain thing that you're doing. Consider what the Lord might be saying. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. For the Lord your God commanded you, six days you shall labor and do all your work. The seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord In it you shall do no work. We'll read the rest of that in just a moment. I want to read a few passages in regard to our conduct regarding the Sabbath today and what it is that we should be doing as Christians within that. Jesus did do away with the law. Now there are people that say, oh, you can't say that because Jesus didn't abolish the law. That's true. He came and presented something superior to the law, making the law inferior, right? I always use the example of computers. When I first started using computers, I had a Commodore 64 joystick. I want to play Centipede on that, the game, and a little cassette tape. You would put it in and hit play, and it would play for quite a while feeding the information to the computer and you could play like that first two levels on the game but once you've reached reach the end of that and, and it says okay now you got to load the second you got to take that cassette out and you can put another cassette in and hit play and it play the whole second uh cassette and then you can play up to like level four listen <clears throat> if you want you might not be interested in centipede at all but you can now download that on your cell phone right takes up like so much you know it's just so little as far as the space and you know right away it's just so lame you won't even want to be playing it it's just it's obsolete it's obsolete the superior has come and we've done away right at no point as i'm working on you know 
putting papers together and editing websites and doing the things that I do, do I think, man, I wish I had that Commodore 64 back. Wish I could work on that for a few hours. Just life's moving so fast. I'd like to slow rate down is what I'd like to do. The superior has come. It has replaced the inferior. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law for us. We're told in the book of Hebrews that Jesus fulfilling those things makes it that we can cease from the works of the law because Jesus is the thing that we rest in. You're going to run into people in Christianity that want to drag you back to the law. I've noticed you've been eating bacon and eggs in the morning. Do you know you're not supposed to eat bacon? Do you know you're supposed to go to church on Saturday? Do you know this? Do you know that they've got all kinds of rules and regulations taking us back to the inferior? What was the first miracle Jesus did, right? Water to wine. What was the illustration? That in the second delivery, Jesus gave us something superior to what was first delivered. The law was delivered first, and it was inferior to what Jesus delivered at the last. So we want to hold to that illustration and the miracle that Jesus demonstrated for us. I'll give you a few passages of Scripture. Romans chapter 14, verse 5. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. You know, maybe you can't even come to church on Sunday. You know, maybe you have to come Sunday night or maybe you have to come Wednesday. You should have a day each week that you do not do any work where you worship the Lord and seek his presence. That is something that we should do. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. I'll just read you three of the verses. Paul says, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Verse 23, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, fault, humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Right? The illustration I always give is my wife often goes away. She's gone for a few days. I go pick her up at the airport. As she approaches, I do not fall down on the floor and hug and kiss and embrace her shadow. Right? They would haul me away to the funny farm. The substance of my wife is what I'm looking for and what I'm there to demonstrate my affections toward. The Sabbath, the dietary restraints, all of those things are the shadow. The substance is Jesus Christ. Have you grasped him? Do you hold to him? Is he your rest? Is he your fulfillment? The substance is Christ. Mark chapter 2, verse 27 and 28. And he said to them, Jesus speaking, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was designed for you to rest and recharge your batteries, for you to recuperate spiritually and physically in order for you to go back to work and start the week over. It wasn't designed to be a thing that you were enslaved to that you had to serve. So hopefully that's 
a good enough brief explanation back to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 14. We read, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughters, nor your male servants, nor your female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. And remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God has commanded you. Your days may be long and that it may be well with you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Now, this honoring that he's spoken of is, um, it, it would most directly mean pay them, okay? But the idea is to care for them in their need. So this idea of honoring is not so much of like, you know, always saying yes, ma'am, or always saying no, sir. There are some parents who are incredibly sinful and incredibly abusive, and they'll even demand, you need to respect me. Well, if you're not worthy of that type of respect, the scripture doesn't actually demand that of us. What the scripture is telling us to do is that especially in their elder years, when they need someone to attend to their needs, you must do this regardless of how they have behaved toward you. You have to, you have to respect them for the life that they gave you. You shouldn't talk back. You shouldn't speak ill. You shouldn't be misbehaving toward them, right? But some of us struggle with the fact that you don't know my old man, you know. That guy is a piece of work. Yeah, I, I don't know why you're saying I got to respect him. It's the idea of when you see your father has need of you, be there for him. That's that's what's being said here. Do not neglect your parents. Remember that Jesus rebuked the religious leaders because they had worked out this little loophole for themselves, where they would go and sign a document at the temple saying that everything they owned now belonged to the temple. But they would often pay a large sum of money so that they could then basically lease it back for themselves for the remainder of their lives. So then dad shows up and says, hey, I need a little cash. Can you help me out? Oh, I'd love to, dad. But everything I own belongs to the temple. Everything I own is Corbin. I've already given it. To the Lord is what they were saying. And it was a manipulative process to neglect their parents. And Jesus is rebuking them and saying, you need to honor your parents, meaning you need to financially take care of them. Now, some of your parents just went, brilliant, that's my retirement plan. <laughs> it's the idea of more like medical necessity, that, that you need to care for the welfare of your parents. Um, so, um, we've run out of time once again. Uh, we'll pick up right there next week. We move into some deeper, uh, subjects starting right out with, 
Uh, you shall not uh, murder. You shall not kill. As we move through a, a progressive explanation of these Ten Commandments. Good place to stop in regard to caring for our families. When we moved into the house we're in uh, right now, um, the, uh, the neighbors, it was interesting, the neighbors, everyone, we have five neighbors that live on our little private drive. Every one of them stopped and said, how many generations do you have living in this house? My mother, myself, my children, and their children at the time were living there. They have four generations under one roof. You know, looked like preschool. The place was just mob of, you know, teachers and kids. It was great. It was great. We were all living together. And we lived that way for a couple of years. You know, the Lord blessed us with family. And, and yeah, it has its challenges. Oh, but the blessing that we miss by not having those relationships and not nurturing those relationships. Consider what the Lord might be speaking to you about and about caring for, honoring parents, grandparents, great-grandparents. It's a wonderful thing that the Lord has blessed us with. So we'll pick up with the remainder of this next week. Why don't you stand and we'll pray together. The authority of God's word. We shouldn't be walking around saying, my sin is somebody else's fault. It's our fault. And we need to change. We need to be submitted to the Lord and follow what it is that he has to say. Father, bless us. Keep us. Watch over us. Minister to us. Help us to, to bear your name in a fruitful way. Lord, that it wouldn't be in vain. That we would see your kingdom come and your will be done in us and through us. Watch over us. Guide us as your children. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.